0: That was absolutely beautiful. Thank you. I think you should do it again next week. We're talking about Daniel and the Lions. Dan, he may need a little help. Good morning, church. I'm in your. uh, In the ends of each row, there's just a couple of these in each row, but at the end of each row, there's just a little blue form like this, white with blue ink on it actually, that uh, just is a prayer request. If you have a prayer request you'd like to convey to us, to our prayer groups, to our church office, if you want, you can fill that out. If your whole row wants to just write a list on there and then just fold it over, you can drop it in the box in the back. There's actually a prayer request box as well, but um, we thought that that would be helpful and... uh, I'm really glad to uh, to have Joy among leading our prayer group, and she's the one who put those together for you. If you have a mountain you need to move, there's a song you should remember. We are talking this week, this uh, this year, actually, about the God directed life. This is the theme for the year: the God directed life. Jesus said, My yoke is easy. He invited us to take His yoke on us. When you are yoked together with Jesus, who does the pulling? Jesus does. If you think you're doing the pulling, you are mistaken. Okay, You're a little confused about what what pulling looks like. Because when the little ox is yoked together with the big ox, the big ox does the pulling. The little ox does the following. So what's your role when you're yoked together with Jesus? Keep following. What's Jesus' role? Keep pulling. Who's doing the pulling? Jesus is. That's who's doing the pulling. The good life, the blessed life, the abundant life, the easy life, the life of blessing is this life. The God-directed life is the life where you find the blessing of God on your life. Now, it doesn't mean every day is perfect. It doesn't mean every day is wonderful. It's why we're looking at Daniel, because in the book of Daniel, we see people under a very difficult, stressful time following God, following with faithfulness in a very, very hard time. We, are, we have established, I think, in our, in our church an understanding that you are saved by grace through faith. Correct? Yeah. You are saved by grace through faith. You're not saved by your actions. You're not saved by your deeds. You're not saved by what you do. I heard the best illustration of this this week. I, I should save it for another time, but I'm going to do it anyway because I just loved it. The guy, the guy told a story. He said, imagine two, two uh, Jewish men standing outside talking before the first Passover. You remember the first Passover, that was when the angel of death was passing over Israel if they had put the blood on the doorpost. He said, imagine these two men having a conversation, the one man says to the other man, aren't you a little nervous about this thing tonight? He said, no, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. And the guy says, well, I'm really getting getting scared. You know, the angel of death, that's serious business, the angel of death. And he said, well, did, did you put the blood on the doorpost? Yep, yep, I put the blood on the doorpost. I made sure it was on there, real dark, real red, so it's there for sure. Good, good, okay, then then you should be all right. Did you, did you, did you slide on the Passover lamb? Or are you ready to have the Passover meal with your family tonight? Yep, 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 I'm all prepared, I'm all prepared. So what are you nervous about? Man, I have one child. You have three, of course you're not worried about it. I have one child. He so, says, no, no, you don't have to worry. You're, you're good, you're, you're, you're good. God's got you covered. Your blood's on the doorpost. You're ready for the Passover. But I'm nervous, I'm scared. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm worried about this thing. And the other guy says, look, I'm not worried at all. Blood's on the doorpost. I'm ready for the Passover, la- Passover tonight. I'm good. Bring it on, God. Which man lost a son that night? Neither of them. Because the clarity and intensity of their faith was not the issue. It was the blood of the Lamb. When you are following after God, you are saved by his grace. What then is obedience about? It's the means to greater and stronger faith. And it's the measurement of where my faith is today. That's all. I know where my faith is when I say no to God. The moment when I come up against God saying, do this, and I say, wait a second, that's a bridge too far, God. I know exactly where my faith is. The means to greater faith is when I step beyond what I think I, can, I am capable of doing, when I step beyond what I know I am able to do in my own authority and my own power, when I step on beyond that point, that's when my faith grows. It's the means to greater faith, it's the measure of where my faith is. And that's what the God-directed life is, li- is about. We're talking about the life that leads to greater and greater and greater faith. We're talking about the practice of saying yes To God over and over and over again. And one of the things we've been saying is a good life comes from good choices. A good life comes from good choices. You get to make choices in your life, good ones, lead to better and better and better experiences. No one drifts into greatness. I want to talk to teenagers. By the way, Danae, that was awesome. Janae, awesome. Thank you. Nay and nay. Thank you both. But I want to talk to the teenagers for a minute because teenagers, you think you can drift into wonderful greatness. You know what you drift into? C minus. You get a C minus life out of drifting. You get a C minus life. You get a C minus education out of drifting. You get a C minus scholarship out of drifting. You know what the C minus scholarship pays you? Adults. We think we're beyond it, but we're not. We've got to be making choices that direct our life toward God. Day in and day out, week in and week out, year in and year out, we have to constantly be making choices to follow after God's heart. As He challenges us to the next step, we have to keep going. We have to keep going. We have to keep going. Today, the big challenge is I have 39 slides. Thirty nine slides gives me about a minute per slide. So if I sound like I'm going fast, it's because I am. We're going to try to cover Daniel four and five because Daniel four and five are to be told as one story. Remember, chapter divisions, verse divisions, all those pieces are add ins to the text. They're not in the original text. Daniel four and five are one story. They're a comparative story between two kings. They're a comparative story between two different kings of the same lineage in Babylon. The chiasm ziggurat. I thought since we we're talking about Babylon and we're talking about this, we need to talk about a chiasm. You remember what a chiasm is? A chiasm is a way of, of, of organizing your ideas and your thoughts. The way this works biblically, a chiastic structure looks like this. On one half of the chiasm, chiasm, there's a point being made. At the other end, as if you had gone up one side and descended the other side, is a point similar to it being made. So Daniel 2 lines up with Daniel 7. Daniel 3 lines up with Daniel 6. Remember Daniel 2, the statue, the image that that goes through time? Remember Daniel 7 is Daniel's experience describing those beasts that go through time? Daniel 3 has the the, uh, three Hebrew, Hebrew... uh, worthies as we call them being thrown into the fiery furnace. Daniel 6 has Daniel himself being thrown into the lion's den Daniel chapter 4 is Nebuchadnezzar's confession and his dream where Nebuchadnezzar tells the story of, God, of Being of going out losing his mind and going out into the wilderness eating grass and living out there for seven years And Daniel 5 is a comparative story. where Belshazzar is is defiant toward God And the middle of this thing is the end of Daniel, chapter 4, verses 36 and 37, the proclamation and confession of the king of Babylon. And I'll be trying to prove that to you today. This is actually a a supposed picture of Nebuchadnezzar in his cool, I fight and I'm a general helmet, on a coin, so it's it's a very small picture, just brief outlines of it. Um, he's king at, at age 29. He fought battles for the first third of his, of his reign. So he reigned for 43 years. So you kind of divide that up into three parts. The first third of his reign, he's actively fighting battles. The next third of his reign, he's pretty much at rest. There are no battles to be fought. And the last third of his reign, he's back out on the battlefield. He dies at between 71 and 72 years old, still in office, still leading the armies of Babylon and the nation of Babylon. Here we are in Jeremiah chapter 39, 1 to 3. I believe the story we're talking about takes place at the end of the first third and as he enters that second third and one of the entering moments of that second third is the fall of Jerusalem. Jeremiah chapter 39, in the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month of Nebuchadnezzar king, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon and his armies came against Jerusalem and besieged it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, the city was penetrated. Then all the princes and the king of Babylon came and sat in the middle gate. Nergal, Sherezer, Samgar, Nebo, Sersakim, Rabsaris, Nergal, Serezer. This guy in red I want you to see because his name's coming back up in a little while. Rabmag with the rest. I like that guy's name, Rabmag. Sounds like a rock star, doesn't he? Rabmag with the rest of the princes of the king of Babylon. It's a band name, Rabmag and the kings of Babylon but the last what that guy in red there's going to come up again but what i want you to think about is as the first third of of nebuchadnezzar's reign starts to draw to a close he's been winning battles all over the empire building his empire and things are getting quiet the last sort of bits that he's putting together the last elements are a, a campaign against egypt and a camp- campaign against jerusalem and when jerusalem fell, falls and egypt comes under his sway things quiet down for him and that's where we find babylon and that's where we find king nebuchadnezzar as this story starts nebuchadnezzar the king note who's writing this part of the story Nebuchadnezzar the king to all peoples, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth. Who's writing the story? Nebuchadnezzar the king is writing the story. This is a pagan king in your Bible. He's 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 infiltrated himself right there in the middle. There he just he just weaselled his way right into the middle of your Bible, Daniel chapter four. You have a pagan king writing the story of his experience with God. This section of the Bible, as I, I told you, is written in Aramaic from Daniel chapter 2 in like verse 7 to the end of chapter 7 is in Aramaic. That's the chiastic structure that I just showed you in that segment of the Bible. He's writing it to all the people, nations, languages who dwell in all the earth. Let me ask you a question. Why was Israel placed on the Highway 5 of the Fertile Crescent? to be an influence, to be a witness to God, to the people who passed by. They were placed in a a position to touch the world as it passed by, to demonstrate what it it meant to follow after God. That's what Israel's assignment was, correct? The covenant with God, I will bless you, you will be a blessing to others, right? He says that to Abraham, he says it to the people of Israel, and it carries on for generations. I will bless you that you might be a blessing to others. How often have they done it? They've not been very good at it, have they? We know that it worked out pretty well during David and Solomon's reign, because during David and Solomon's reign, we have people coming from around the world to talk to David and Solomon about the blessings of God in their lives. We know it happened once in Hezekiah's reign, when that miraculous moment when God stops and moves back, moves the, the sundial back 10 degrees, and he overcomes Sennacherib, that... The Babylonians actually come and talk to him about what happened. So we know it happens a little bit. But the goal of God, it seems to me, by parking them on Highway 5 at the rest stop, was that everybody who went by heard about God. Everybody who went by got a pamphlet. Everybody who went by saw these people who were blessed by God and that the entire region would be blessed by them and be, would be touched by them. Now who's writing to that region? Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king of Babylon, is writing to the people of the Fertile Crescent, which, by the way, he controls, to all the people and all the nations who dwell on all the earth. Now, he didn't know about the Chinese. I know we always get arguments like this. He didn't know about the Chinese. He didn't know about the Africans. Don't blame him for not knowing. He's writing to everybody he knew. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders of the Most High God has worked for me. So what you're reading as you open up chapter 4 is a testimony. You're reading the testimony of a king of Babylon about the God of Israel. And you let, can you just let that settle into your brain for a second? Because you you, none of you looked impressed enough. I heard one amen from the front. That's a testimony about the God of Israel from the king of Babylon. Pretty cool, eh? How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is everlasting, is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. He begins his statement about God with this little poem. And he starts to tell the world what the God of Israel is like. Israel has abandoned its covenant responsibility to God by going after foreign gods. They worship Baal and Asherah. And the people who are supposed to know and understand and be worshiping God and telling the world about him have completely walked away. And who has God given the message to? A pagan king of Babylon. Israel, you've walked away from your testimonial responsibility. I'm finding me a new person who will testify. And here he is. Let me introduce you to Nebuchadnezzar. King of Babylon takes up the testimonial role of Israel. Do you understand the cool power of this? God calls Nebuchadnezzar through his prophets, his servant. God calls Nebuchadnezzar over and over again through the prophets, his servant. And we're beginning to see that service open up. We saw it open a crack in chapter 2 when Daniel amazed him by telling him about the dream. God, he said, man, your God is a God of gods and the God of kings, and he knows stuff that nobody else knows. That's very cool. Chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get thrown into the fiery furnace. A fourth goes with them. What do we figure out by that? God doesn't say you won't ever go into a crisis, but he says you won't go into it alone. You will, he doesn't say you won't go through the fire, but you won't walk through there alone. That's the point of Daniel chapter 3. But what Nebuchadnezzar realized was your God delivers Right? He said, you serve a God who can deliver on his promises. You, you serve a God who can get you out of a tight spot that I created. Notice when he says this to them, just before that he's told them, who's going to get you out of this if I throw you in the fire? And they say, well, our God's able to save us. If he doesn't, he doesn't. But he can. <laughs> Into the fire they go. There are four of them in there. Nebuchadnezzar's armor is beginning to get little chinks in it. His, his defenses are getting, beginning to crack. And now when we get to this chapter in chapter 4, we see the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, we never see Nebuchadnezzar who is completely free of paganism. Okay? I, I, need, you to, I need you to hold two things in your mind that are going to seem really in conflict but I think I can illustrate it for you. We're never going to see Nebuchadnezzar throughout the writings of Nebuchadnezzar for the rest of his history. So we have documents from Nebuchadnezzar that that post-date this, that are after this. Okay? What we find is that Nebuchadnezzar continues to comment and write about other gods. Okay? But he seems to believe that there is a superior God in heaven who created everything. And knows everything. And is leading the Israelite people. Here's what I want to hand you. Are there any things in your life that don't quite line up the way they should? So so you claim service to the Most High God, right? You claim that he answers your prayers and he listens to your prayers, right? But there are things in your life that don't quite line up, right? Now, is God working on those? Yeah. Is he trying to change you? Yeah. Could he be doing that with Nebuchadnezzar? Does God love this pagan king who belongs to another nation as much as he loves the people of Israel? Yes, he does. does he, is he going to be exalted and joyful and, and so happy when Nebuchadnezzar walks through the pearly gates? Yeah. Yes, he is. We do not have the permission of God to ever believe, state, or otherwise assume somebody's not making it. Amen. That's right. It is our call to testify to what we know about God in every way we can. Emotionally, physically, verbally, in every way we can. We are called, just as Israel was called, to constantly be presenting to the world a picture of God that is more accurate than anything else there is out there. But we are never given permission to tell one of his children they're not going home. We are never given permission to let it creep into our heart that we are superior in any way than any of the other children. Okay? Okay? So we do know that Nebuchadnezzar continues throughout his life to write about the other gods, commentaries about the other gods, okay? But Nebuchadnezzar seems to understand the God of heaven is different. The God of Daniel is different. The God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is different. He believes and understands that this is the most high God. It's a starting place for a guy who's worshipped Probably a dozen gods his whole life. And God takes him and starts using him where he is. Meeting him where he is. Helping him grow in his relationship with him. All right? Okay. Long explanation. I know I have 39 slides. Dan chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. I'm not going to try to cover all of the picture. I'm just trying to give you the, the high points. Because I think the point of the story carries better if we don't get bogged down in the details too much. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house. And this, this idea here that he's at rest, that he's hanging out at home, Nebuchadnezzar was not a sit-on-your-throne king. Nebuchadnezzar was an in-the-field king. He was a field general type of king. And so this is why I believe this is happening during the middle third of his reign when things quieted down and he didn't need to be out there fighting on the battlefields much anymore. He will go back at the end of his reign and go back and put down, battle, put down a rebellion all over the empire. But at this point... I think we're in the middle of his reign. So figure between 10 and 15 years into his reign. He's a middle-aged man. He's between about 45 and maybe 60, which is more middle-aged than I thought it was before when I was younger. Okay, He's in that middle part of his life. Things are different. He's got kids. He's got grandkids. Things have settled down around the kingdom. He's home. He's enjoying his life. He's at rest at his house and flourishing in his palace, and I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts of my bed and the vision of my head troubled me. For a pagan king, for a king who runs a military, for a king who runs an empire, to use that word there in the third line, which made me afraid, there's a humility about this man now. There's a humility about him. This is not the guy who said, Do what I tell, what I tell you, or I'm going to cut you into pieces and turn your house into an ash heap. Not the same guy. There's a transformation in the way he talks and the way he goes about his business. He's afraid. This vision has made him afraid. <clears throat> he calls the astrologers in the usual group. I'm not sure why these guys always call it, call that group. They're just not very helpful. They must be helpful at something else. There's some, you know, there's, there's maybe there's a like, you know, an entertainment version. They come in, they do tricks and stuff. Maybe they juggle. I don't know. Sleight of hand here. Look at this card. Nothing up my sleeve. Presto. I don't know. Maybe they're entertaining, but they're not helpful with these things. He calls the usual group, they're not helpful, but the Bible says, but at last Daniel came. But at last Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of of my God. In him is the Spirit of the Holy God. And I told the dream before him. So notice he's not holding out anymore. He's not asking them to tell him the dream, and then he'll explain it. He's now... Telling him the dream. I told him the dream. This is what the dream was. He was asleep, and he saw this giant tree. This tree grew up and was huge. And all the creatures of the earth gathered under this tree, and the birds of the air gathered in this tree. And this tree nurtured and cared for them, and it was a, it was a place of rest for them. This was a wonderful, wonderful sort of Edenic garden scene in his, in the, as the dream opened. And then he saw... A messenger from heaven, an angel come and and say to cut down the tree. That the tree should be chopped down and bound with two bronze rings. Now I've heard people put these bronze rings to be Rome and Greece. They might be. I don't know. Persia and Greece. They might be. I don't know. I don't think that's the point. I really don't. I think there's a bigger point here. The angel changes in his declarations about the tree... And starts using the first person pronoun, let him graze, let the person graze with the beast, which tells you this isn't about a tree, it's about a person. And as he goes on to describe it, that this person would graze with the beast, Think. I think that's what scares Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel, here, here's the story. Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time. So imagine, here's Daniel. He's just heard the, tale, the story from the king. Remember, <clears throat> this is the almighty potentate of Babylon, <clears throat> pre-conversion, who at the close of chapter 3 used the words, if you are not, any, or if anyone says anything bad about the, king, about the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I will cut them, have them cut into pieces and turn their houses into ash heaps. That's how chapter 3 closes. And Daniel's invited to come talk to this king, and he's got a bad news dream. So Daniel... Is astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belshazzar answered, My Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you, and its interpretation concern your enemies. So what's Daniel wishing? He's wishing that this dream is not about Nebuchadnezzar, he's wishing that it's about somebody else. And he goes on to tell him that this picture, this tree, is him. It's Babylon, his empire, that the angel's going to chop it down, and that for seven years he's going to be crawling around out there with the beasts of the field eating grass like an ox, and he's going to be out of his mind. But he said, the fact that the tree is bound means that it will still be there. There's still still a stump and there's still binding on the stump. So the tree is not going to be killed. It's not going to be lost. There will still be a tree at the end of the day. So you won't be gone. You won't die. This is a picture of what will happen to you. And he says, King, can I give you some advice? He says, you know, could you uh, consider maybe a little advice? This hopefully would be acceptable to you. And then he lays it on him. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your posterity or prosperity. King, I'm telling you right now, this message is not a good one. And if you want to dodge this bullet, you're going to have to be nice King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months. So either he was nice King Nebuchadnezzar for 12 months. Possible? Or God just gave him 12 months to work this out. Possible? We don't know which one. The Bible doesn't say. It just says at the end of 12 months. So a year later. The picture I have here, and the reason it's up there, is because this is an artist's conception of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. I was reading this week some of the, uh, the research, the archaeological research on this. And what it basically says is that each of these layers, each of these levels of the hanging gardens is mounted on these, these stone pillars like you see here. Okay, And then across the top of that are palm trees and then thatch. And that's all covered with tar. And then it's bricked over the tar. And then there's lead over top of the brick. And then it's backfilled with enough soil that you can grow trees on it. And you can walk under these passageways in here and you have a garden growing over your head, which would just freak me completely out. But apparently people did. Just this amazing thing. And a series of pumps took water up from the river and started it in canals at the top. And the water ran through those canals and channels and watered everything. The description from Josephus is so that the grass was always green. Where is the grass always green? Babylon. Where is Babylon? Middle of a desert. Nebuchadnezzar's wife, he married a woman from Media. The Median Empire is up in the mountains. He married a woman from Media and she missed the mountains. Was looking out at this flat land she lived in and she missed the mountains. And so her husband made her a mountain. Why? Because he could. Happy wife. Happy life. I just want you to imagine you've walked out on your porch, because that's what happens twelve months later. He walks out on his porch. His palace is probably cooler than this. He looks out over the, the over Babylon, which he has about quadrupled in size. He looks at his artificial mountain in the desert. And he gets a big kingly grin on his face and he goes, I am the coolest guy in Babylon. I might be the coolest guy on the planet. He says it like this. Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Isn't this Babylon that I have built so that everybody knows how cool I really am? Is he talking about Daniel's God? Is he thinking about Daniel's God? As those words left his mouth, in fact, the Bible says while they were still in his mouth, he suffered something. We're not sure. There's a couple of possibilities. There's a disease Called Lyconium, I think it's what the 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 pronunciation is, where it's called the Werewolf Disease, where a person just literally they think they're an animal, and they go out and they live in the fields and they just live out there and they eat whatever they find out there they and and whatever whatever overcame him, that's what happened to him, and he goes from being the coolest guy on the block to this weird little sideshow in the backyard. Now his backyard was probably acres and acres of backyard. But that's what he is. He's a seven-year sideshow. He's got long fingernails. He's got long beard. The hair hair on his on his head and his beard is matted down. He's become what everybody looks who looks at him thinks of as an animal. And he's eating the grass of the field. Now I I saw I read one author who said he, something happened to happen to him because you couldn't survive on grass. I don't think it's literally meaning that he ate just grass. I mean, he probably ate bugs and grass and nuts and raisins and whatever else he could find out there on the ground. The the deal is he ate whatever he could find on the ground. The Bible says they fed him like an ox for seven years. So when they brought him his food, when they brought the king the delicacies that we saw in chapter 1, they were grain, nuts, Grass, leaves. He finally became a vegan. <laughs> finally got that done. The deal here, though, is he, he he lost his mind. For seven years, he went from being the top dog to being the dog. He went from... From being the king of Babylon to being this weird sideshow freak. Now, people have lots of theories about why he didn't get dethroned during this time. There's a couple of them. My personal favorite is who's in charge of the country? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are the top four officers. They could protect the king. Okay? There is also a, a, a truth about people during this era. They believe that if you ever killed someone who was mentally ill, the mental illness that they had, which was caused by a demon, this is what everybody thought, would then enter you. And so people who were mentally ill were kind of protected because nobody would kill them because nobody wanted what they had. So he may have remained alive because nobody would kill him, but the reason he isn't dethroned, I think, is because Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego know what's going on and they're loyal to this king through the end ever had a crazy boss was he crawling around the carpet eating the stuff he found in it then yours wasn't as bad as this one they remained faithful apparently to him throughout those seven years at the end of the time I Nebuchadnezzar lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me and I blessed the most high He looks up to heaven. We don't know whether that means he prayed or whether he came to his senses and looked up to God and asked for help. We're not not sure what he means by that. But what he says is, I came to myself and I blessed the Most High. And when he came to himself, he blessed God. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar has become the testimony for Israel. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven all those who work all all of whose works are truth and his ways justice and those who walk in pride he is able to put down Nebuchadnezzar has taken over the testimony of Israel, and he has cast that testimony around the entire world that he knows of. Everybody under his influence has now heard about the God of heaven. Israel lost its testimony, and the testimony was handed over to a pagan king in Babylon. Israel walked away because it was following after gods who were just rocks and sticks, and the pagan king who used to follow rocks and sticks... Found the God of Israel and he gives testimony to the authority and power of God. How's your testimony? Are you likely to lose it? Is it going to be handed off to somebody else? Or are you using it? How's your testimony? You see, Israel was giving all credit to a different God. Not the God of heaven. The contrasting king is the next story. Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon takes about seven years. Nebuchadnezzar dies in 562 at age 72. Amal Marduk, his son becomes king from 562 to 560. Nergal Sherazer, that's the guy who was sitting at the gate in Jerusalem. His son-in-law kills his son and reigns from 560 to 556. His son, Labishimarduk, becomes the king in 556. But he reigns for only nine months. He's just a little kid. And the people kill him. The leadership in, in, in the nation kills him. And Nabonidus is, a, is selected to be the next king. And he reigns from 5.56 to 5.39 when Cyrus will take over. And his son Belshazzar will be a co-regent of his because Nabonidus doesn't apparently like Babylon. I think Nabonidus is probably the son of the wife from Media. The reason I think this is because he spends his time away from Babylon. His two favorite places <coughs> are an oasis out in the Arabian Desert. Still there. Big, big giant oasis out in the Arabian Desert. And Haran, the last stronghold of the Assyrian Median Empire. Those are the places he hangs out and he puts his son in charge at Babylon that's why his son is found in the throne room as the royal regent at the time when chapter 5 starts. Cyrus the Persian is at the gate of Babylon, and the empire is crumbling, crumbling around them. The empire is beginning to weaken and crumble, and Cyrus is outside waiting to get in, and Belshazzar the king makes a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and they drank wine in the presence of those thousands. Belshazzar gave the king to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple, which, he had, in, which had been in Jerusalem, and that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Stop for a sec. This man already knows the stories about Babylon. He already has heard about Daniel chapter 2. He already has heard about Daniel's God. He already knows the story of Nebuchadnezzar's rise and Nebuchadnezzar's humility. He knows all of this stuff and he knows that the story says the Babylonian empire will fall. Who is he defying? And how is he going to defy God? Well, he's going to throw a party saying, I'm not going to worry about the threat. And then he's going to ask them to bring the gold and silver vessels from the very temple of God so that he can drink from them and say, God, I have more faith in these walls than I have in you. God, I have more faith in the walls around my house than I have in you. I have more faith in the deadbolt on my front door than I have in you. God, I have more faith in my fund that Dave Ramsey told me I should have, that emergency fund. I have more faith in that than I have in you. God, I have more faith in my mouth being able to get me out of trouble than I have in you. God, I have more... You put it out there. If my impact... If my first impulse is not to pray, what is it to do? I love the story of Nehemiah when they go back to rebuild the temple and they they're, uh, rebuild the wall around Jerusalem and they're being attacked from all sides. The Bible says he prayed and then he acted. He prayed and he got up and he started moving. I like both of those. I like the fact that when you pray, you should act. And I like the fact that you should pray before you act. I like the idea that prayer comes first, but I like the fact that people just don't stay there praying. I know some folks who pray themselves into starvation. They just keep praying and praying and praying. God, please, please bring something, please bring something, please. And they never get off off their knees. They have great prayer lives, but there's no action. I think the two go together. I don't want to disparage prayer at all. In fact, I'm encouraging it. But I say you should pray and act. I don't think you should act and pray. I think you should pray and act. I think we should first impulse be saying, God, here's what I want to do. I want to follow after you. I want to do what you want. Pray and move. Pray and go. Pray and start. Now, if God is saying don't start, stay there till he says you can start. I better stop. I only have 38 more slides. They drank wine, and they praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Who's not being praised? God of Israel. So God responds, and in the same hour, a fingers, the, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote in the opposite of the lampstand on the plaster of the wall, and the king's palace, and the king saw the, saw the part of the hand that wrote. So a finger shows up and starts writing on the wall. And the king's countenance changed. Do you realize there are two places where the finger of God writes? on a stone, a couple of stone tablets being carried by Moses up a mountain, and here on the wall of a pagan king. He's been drawing on the walls inside Nebuchadnezzar's house. The king's countenance changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so the joints of his hips... I like this text just because I'm amused by it. So the joints of his hips loosened up, and his knees knocked together. I just love this picture. Here's this king. He's trying to be such a tough guy. We don't have to worry about Cyrus and those dumb Persians out there. No way. We don't have to worry about God, the God of Israel. No way. Bring me my wine. Then his finger starts writing on the wall. It only writes four words. Writing on the wall. And he's so scared that his hip joints, the Bible says his hip joints get loose. I don't know how that works. My hip joints don't get loose and cause my knees to knock together. I have to work at knocking my knees together. I, God will have to show me the video. His hip joints loosen up and his knees knock together. Daniel was brought before the king. Now, first he called the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers, and all the regular bunch. And again, no help. So he calls Daniel. Daniel was brought before the king because the queen mother, Hebrew probably has this as the queen mother, not his wife, the queen mother remembers Daniel. And she recommends Daniel to him. Daniel is brought before the king. He offers him all kinds of stuff. We're skipping the stuff he offers. Daniel answered, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom of majesty and glory and honor. So Daniel knows what this thing says, but he's recounting the story of Nebuchadnezzar. He says, Your father, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, is it his father? I just showed you. It's like four generations from his father. So biblically... Abraham is the father of somebody who lives in the New Testament. Why? Because they're on that line, that progeny. So that's what it simply means. You're progeny. You're you're part of that family. Your father, Nebuchadnezzar, your father, Nebuchadnezzar, was given a king, majesty, glory, and honor. When his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed. His heart was made like a beast and his dwelling was like was with the wild donkeys till he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdoms of men. It's been less than 30 years since Nebuchadnezzar. Can your family remember something for 30 years? Could your family remember that the, the most high-ranking member of your family went crazy for seven years, for 30 years? You think your family would remember that story? If, if, there were, if there were any stories you would forget, you'd forget, you know, his favorite ice cream, you'd forget a bunch of stuff, but he was crazy for seven years, lived out there eating grass in the fields. That seems like a story that even Belshazzar would have heard, don't you think? Only been thirty years, but you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Then the text, although you knew all of this, although you knew all of this, he desp- he deciphers what's on the wall. Many, many Tekel farson. Remember what the story is. You've been weighed in the balance and found wanting, your kingdom will be divided and give to the Persians. That very night, the Bible says his life was required of him. We know the story the Persians come through the open gate, they march into the city without resistance, they take over the city, they kill him. There's some who believe his father, who was out fighting Haran of all places was actually allowed to retire down in central Persia. But here's what I want to say. The stories that are in this pinnacle of stories, stories build up this side, stories go down from this other side, they're they're reinforcing an idea. The idea at the pinnacle of this story is that there is a God of, of, of heaven He is, in fact, in charge of what happens on the earth. He cares about his people. He cares about what happens in their lives. And whenever possible, he will actually intercede for them. And you should humble yourself before that God. Here's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar when he did it. Here's what happened to Belshazzar when he didn't. And the peak of the chiasm is Nebuchadnezzar saying to all the people, who will listen in his, in his entire empire, you should serve the Most High God. It's a message that's as real today as it was in 560 B.C. It's his message at, that's as true for us as it was for him, that the God of heaven is the God of heaven and the earth. He cares about what happens to his people and he intercedes for us. And if we will humble ourselves and follow him, we will find him blessed. And we will find ourselves blessed. If we refuse and we defy him, we will find ourselves, as the New Testament says, kicking against a sharp object, kicking against the pricks. That the God-directed life is a life of abundance. And the God-resistant life is a life of pain. There's no rest day or night. For those who receive the mark of the beast in Revelation chapter 13. There's no rest, day or night, for those who refuse to follow after God, because the only real rest is to rest in the arms of Jesus. Amen. That's what the story is about. Yep, two interesting stories about pagan kings. But ultimately the story is about following after the, the God who is the God of everything. Who cares about his people and who intercedes when he can. A God who reveals things to man. Who rescues guys from fires. That God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we took a big bite today. And we've skipped over so many bits and pieces of this story that would be fun to explore. But help us not to miss the point that we are being challenged by the stories of these two kings (coughs) to follow you. Help us to understand how we apply this to our day today, our job, our life, our experience today. Help us to trust you when you move the mountains and when you don't. And to follow you all the way home. In Jesus' name, amen.